0: God bless you as you give, um, and t- today we're going to wrap up this series on uh, endangered species. How many of you have been to the first two? How many of you are sleeping? No. So, uh, by the way, thank you so much for coming out last week uh, to the movie, those of you who did come. It was packed. Uh, we, we had too many people to use this auditorium, and we had to go to number two. And uh, I think we had 165 people in the end. And you know, it was one of those movies where I was sitting in the front row, and so I could hear everybody was crying in the whole auditorium. How many of you were here for it? Raise your hand. Did you like it, or was it a waste of your time? It was really good, wasn't it? And I I invited some people from uh, from the, the mission where I serve now two and a half days a week, and uh, totally totally non-christian people completely non-christian and I paid for them and and uh, and they came and I'm telling you they were just speechless at the end and even when I went in on Monday the guy came up to me he said thank you so much for inviting us to that my wife couldn't stop crying the whole movie you know so they're exposed to the message of the gospel and the power to change people's lives so Uh, Thank you so much for coming and being a part of that. And, you know, I told you, you'd need to bring your tissues. Uh, You didn't cry? You did or you didn't? You did? Yeah, well, I did, but nobody saw me because I was in the front row. Ha, ha, ha. But I could hear all of your sobs and your blowing of your noses uh, as you watch that story. So uh, anyway, you'll be able to watch this movie. I'm sure it'll come out on video, you know, in a couple of months. It's called I Can Only Imagine. Worth watching again, for sure, for sure. So anyway, we're talking a little bit related to this, this subject of endangered species. And if you were here, that's the that was the last uh, white rhino uh, on the planet, his name was uh, Sudan. And of course we get we get very emotional when we talk about uh, these endangered species. And as well, we should. As I've said before, in my view, it should be the church, it should be Christians. Uh, who would be the, the, the stewards of God's creation. We believe that God created creation. Well, we should be the ones to take care of it and lead the way. And we do get very emotional when we see these species dying one by one. This one uh, died of natural causes, and then they had to put him down. Uh, but if you see in the next slide, he was being poached, or the species was being poached, and they would have armed guards on him 24-7 uh, to, to guard off poachers. And it occurs to me that right under our noses, uh, there is another endangered species that we don't often think of as being endangered, but guess what? It's you and me. And uh, I'm not talking about the human race. I'm talking about kinds of relationships in the human race and uh, stages in life in the human race, and specifically uh, talking about people. And here you got, you know, the rather funny picture, which which you've seen before. All these couples are going to get married, and, uh, you know, they don't, all look like they're too happy about it. <laughs> There's a couple of them smiling, but you know, you wonder what does that all mean? And here's the thing. Healthy single people, healthy married people, and healthy parents are becoming an endangered species. And I don't mean healthy physically. I'm talking about emotionally, I'm talking about relationally, even spiritually. You know, meeting couples who, who have been married for, you know, decades and decades, this is becoming more and more rare. Seeing families that aren't, aren't uh, broken apart and just filled with all kinds of dysfunction is becoming more and more rare. Seeing single people who are living joy filled lives and they don't have to be married and they don't have to, you know, do what the culture is doing. Uh, this is becoming more and more and more rare. It's, it, it's in my view, uh, an endangered species today. Uh, so we talked uh, first about single people. And remember, we talked about you've got to find your significance in Christ, uh, not in somebody else. And that applies to married people, too. Don't, find, don't look for significance in your spouse. You're not going to find it. They're going to leave you dry. You have to find your significance in Christ. You have to uh, never lose your integrity and, uh, and don't compromise your values, whether you're single or not. But especially if you're single, because there's more pressure on you to do those things. And then we talked about married people, and uh, we talked about how in the in the scripture, uh, the, the the teaching of the scripture is mutual submission. Right? It's not just that the wife submits to her husband, but the husband submits. To his wife, and we broke that passage down, that famous passage of Ephesians chapter 5 and what it really means and how we rightly interpret it, and uh, so you can listen to that message uh, online as well. Just go to our website and you'll see it there, and today we're going to talk about parents. How many parents in the room? Raise your hand. I don't care if your kids are living at home, not living at home, I don't know if you're divorced, separated, multiple kids, multiple, your parent, raise your hand. Okay, so... Um, It's good. Most of you are, and some of you will be one day, okay? But this is going to apply to you whether you're a parent or you're not a parent, but in particular, uh, if you are, your eyes will probably be wide open. Um, How many of you, parenting is an easy job? You don't need any help. Got it all figured out. It's a hard job, right? I mean, it's even harder than being married (laughs) and being married and being a parent at the same time. This is, you know, you've really got a huge, huge load on your plate. Uh, If you're really going to be healthy, you're really going to have a joy-filled experience there. It is not easy being a parent. Um, And so it it occurs to me uh, that what we might want to do is to look to the Scripture and see what advice we can glean uh, from God's Word. And here's, here's the first observation for you, one that we skip over. And over and over again, we'll, we'll run to, I mean, there's a million different parenting books out there, and some of them are very good, and some of them are not. Uh, but, and there's no shortage of that stuff. There's no shortage of counseling on how to be a better parent, no shortage. But I'm telling you, what you find in the book of God about parenting, you're never going to find better advice. You're never going to find better counsel than the, than the one who is the best parent of all, and that is God. First and foremost, realize God is a parent. You say, duh, <laughs> tell me something I don't know, right? We always say, Father, Father, we call God Father. Jesus said you're to pray, our Father. So obviously, there's a paternal relationship there, but God has more kids than anybody else on the planet, and how many of you think it'd be probably good to get advice from him, assuming he knows what he's doing and he's a good parent, yes? Yes. So, think of, think of, first of all, what, how does God parent? And, and, of course, when I say that God is a parent, I'm not saying that He has biological children, okay? He has relational children. So, if you have come to faith in Christ, you become a child of God. There's a parental relationship that, that starts there uh, because you've, you've opened the door of faith. Uh, so how does God parent then and it, you say well god is a father right but he here's here's again what we miss and we jump immediately to the, the 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 paternal characteristics of god but it may shock you especially uh some of the women in the room that there are a few places very defined in the scripture where we see god with maternal characteristics and god as a Mother. So let me talk to the mothers uh, for a few minutes about these things. Uh, This may be, for some of you, the first time you've ever heard this kind of stuff. But let me tell you some images that we see uh, starting in the Old Testament. The first one I'll call Mama Bird. Mama Bird. Uh, And the image from that uh, uh, is Shelter. Shelter. So, uh, Ruth, chapter two, an example of this. And Ruth, you have to read the the story of this this uh, Moabite woman uh, who who comes eventually to faith. There's a beautiful romance in there, and a beautiful illustration of the grace of God. And and we see in Ruth chapter two, uh, Boaz, who would end up being. Uh, uh, Her uh, husband, in the end of the story, uh, when he starts to see who she is, this is what Boaz says. He says, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother in law, uh, which was uh, Naomi, right? Uh, Your mother in law since the death of your husband, and how you left your father and your mother and your homeland, and you came to live with the people you did not know before. So she's not a Jew, and she comes into the whole culture and everything in religion of Judaism. And in verse 12, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. This is Boaz, this man of high standing in the community speaking to this this Moabite woman. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. And here it is, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is an image of a kind of a mother hen. And you see on the screen, what does that mother hen do? Shelters those little chicks, right? And covers them and shelters them from the elements, from predators, from everything. And there's this image of shelter under whose wings You have come to take refuge. You have come for protection. It's a beautiful, beautiful image, but it's a maternal image. Uh, Psalm 17 and verse 8, this is David speaking. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me, he says, in the shadow of your wings. The same idea of shelter, the same idea of protection. Uh, Psalm 91, very, very famous. Uh, This is the psalm that the devil quoted to Jesus when Jesus was being tempted in the desert. Uh, And verse 1, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he's my refuge, he's my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare, from the deadly pestilence he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings there it is again you will find refuge his faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart Matthew 23 this is Jesus toward the end of the of the gospel story he's about to face the cross is a moment where he's just just chastising uh the the Pharisees and the religious folk in Matthew 23 just just Brutally chastising these people, and you know, calling them hypocrites and everything. It's unbelievably uh, harsh the way Jesus is speaking to these people. And he says, "Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks. There's the image again under her wings, but you were not willing." Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, this image of shelter and cover. So mothers in the room, do you shelter your kids? Are you sheltering them? Are you covering them? Are you protecting them? You say, well, of course we are. Of course we are. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's good because that's what God does. You see, and God has that characteristic of shelter, of shelter, uh, and of uh, protection. So we shift from mama bird to what I'll call mama eagle. How many of you have ever seen an eagle, like really in front of you, not on video? They are unbelievable birds to look at, right? mean, just awesome, powerful looking, uh, just really impressive. I was watching a, a, sport, a sport event, a baseball game uh, uh, the other day, and uh, it was in Colorado or somewhere in the Midwest, I think it was, and an eagle, a bald eagle, while they were singing the national anthem, a bald eagle came out of the sky and dropped on this, this baseball player's shoulder. He just, just perched there, and the, the guy was scared, like he didn't move or anything, and the people running out to get this bird away from him, they're big, they're awesome, majestic uh, creatures. I remember uh, being in Africa one time, and I saw a, uh, a snake-eating uh, eagle, so his eyes are so sharp that he, he stands up on these super, super high trees, and he looks for snakes. That's, that's what he eats and he'll just swoop down and grab the snake. His eyes are so, so powerful, powerful animals. And here you have an image uh, in, in the book of Deuteronomy where um, Moses observes something of one of these eagles. Now, there's a debate. Uh, scholars are saying, well, what kind of bird was this? Because this isn't exactly what we see from bald eagles. There's all kinds of fierce debate uh, about this text. But here's what Moses saw. Uh, In a desert land, he found him. And this is imagery talking about Israel and so on. In a desert land, he found him in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. We saw that in the Psalms. And here's the verse, verse 11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. And what this is, uh, in many people's view, is that what Moses observed and what he saw was mama eagle training the little babies to fly. And uh, and I've seen some some of this as I was researching this on the internet. You get some stubborn little little bird that doesn't want to jump out of the nest. And so the mama eagle, uh, and I've seen video of it. She'd get very aggressive sometimes, and she'll pop the little baby right out of the nest. Like some, I've seen video of they gra- grab with the claws and get out of the nest, fly. You, you're being stubborn kind of thing. And, uh, and, and there, there's a video that I saw as well on the internet of this, you got this huge, huge eagle that's just gliding and swooping. And on, and on top or, or on top of this eagle, maybe three, four feet, is a little baby eagle. And he's flapping his wings furiously, you know, trying to stay up in the air. And the mama is underneath. She doesn't touch the, the, the baby, but she's underneath. And she's kind of gliding along like this. And the little baby, trying to flap her wings. And the mom's underneath, and just gliding along, just making sure. So what happens? The little baby... Is looking down. Well, mama's there. So I'm going to flap my little wings and fly because she's there. And it this kind of gives this idea of courage. Come on, you can do it. You can fly. I'm training you to fly. I'm right here. And then you see in in some of these videos, there comes a moment where the mom says, bye-bye. And she takes off and she leaves the baby, you know, to fly. And the baby eventually finds his or her way back to the nest. And this is this kind of idea of training. It's a beautiful, beautiful image of how God cares for us and how God says, come on now. Come on, you can do it. You can live life. Come on, I'm right here. I'll catch you if you fall. And you realize, okay, I can do it. I can do it. God's there. God's there. And he, he's training you to, to, to live and to feed yourself and to fly. Uh, but this is a maternal image. This is, this is not necessarily a masculine paternal thing here. This is a maternal image that we see. Uh, it's, it's mama eagle. Uh, beautifully on display there, and then you have another image again for the moms, and this is Mama Bear. Okay, it's so cute. I mean, look at the little the little cub on that mom, and you know she's like she is she's protecting this. But he, he, the image is interesting. It's in it's in the book of Hosea, and Hosea is the story of a prophet who God told to marry a. Uh, a prostitute uh, and it's quite a quite a story, a very odd story. I've preached on it in this church last year and it's a whole illustration of God and his relationship with, with Israel. And um, you see in in Hebrews chapter 13 uh, this image of a bear that is robbed of her cubs. Any have you ever seen a bear like live? Oh you have, okay massive, massive, intimidating animal, like enormous, enormous animal. And you do not want to get on the bad side of one of these creatures. And the mothers are notorious for protecting their cubs. Uh, You do not want to mess around with with a, a, an angry bear mother when you mess around with their cubs. And so here's the image in, in Hosea 13, and this is directed to Israel. So God is saying, I'm angry at Israel because Israel has, has forsaken me and has given up the things of God and is living a sinful life. And, and the prophet brings this image in, and he says, Like a bear robbed of her cubs... I will attack them. And, st- and the them in the image is Israel. This is how angry God is, as angry as when, a, when a, you, you steal the cubs from a, from a bear mother, and this is what they turn into. <laughs> so this is the idea, the image that we can learn from is, is a protection image, again, to defend your children. And, uh, you know, I've, I've met some moms and when you go after their kid, <laughs> they're, they're, they're like that bear. I mean, they're going to, mama bear is going to come out and defend that kid. And, uh, you know, you, moms, are you doing that? Are you, are you protecting and defending your, your children against some of the poisons of the, of the culture? And some of the things that try and you know, there's destructive things out there for our kids. Are you protecting them from that? Are you saying no, get back, you know, get back, stay away from my kid. And you and you you get in front and you 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 stand in front like that big bear. Well, that's the image that's there. These are all maternal kinds of characteristics. Um, Isaiah chapter uh, um, uh, chapter 66 and chapter 49. This is now referring to to a human mother, and again, this is this is God uh, who who is speaking here. First Isaiah forty nine, um, and again, this is all talking about Israel and its imagery. God trying to describe Himself, but Zion said, "The Lord has forgotten me, the Lord has forsaken me." And here's God's answer: Can a can a mother forget uh, the baby at her breast and have no compassion? On the child she has born? This is God's question. Though she may forget, I will never forget you, Israel. Uh, This image of comfort, this image of being there for your your child, it's a powerful, powerful thing. I will never forget you. Uh, Moms, are you showing that kind of, of an attitude towards your kid? And you know, your your kids may get to a point where they say, oh, you've forgotten me. You've forsaken me. You don't love me. You know, they may get to they may get so angry at you that they may say that to you once in a while. But are you like God who says, I will never forget you. I will never forget you. I will comfort you. Uh, whatever, whatever turmoil may come, I will comfort you. Isaiah chapter 66, this is the back end of Isaiah, probably speaking of the future millennium perhaps, uh, but it's deep into the future, verse 13. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to say something. I don't want it to come out wrong here, um, I don't know how else to say it. Have you ever seen a mother nursing their baby? And I'm not, saying, you do you understand what I mean by that? Okay. When, when, a, when a mother is nursing, it's like you, you time stops for a moment and, you know, the condition has to be just right. And she's got to put everything on pause because this is the time that the baby needs to nurse. And you watch that that, that tenderness and that compassion and that comfort that mothers provide for their children. It's very, very powerful. And that doesn't, that doesn't matter if you're nursing or, you know, you got a bottle and you're feeding your little baby with a bottle. I mean, there's this moment of tenderness and comfort there. And this is what God is trying to say as a mother comforts her child. So I will comfort you and you will be comforted. Uh, over Jerusalem. It's a powerful, powerful image, but it's a maternal image. Now, I'm not saying that you should pray, our mother who's in heaven, hallowed be thine or thy (laughs) name." I'm not saying that, okay? Obviously, when we look into the scripture, uh, we're to call on God as father, but that is not to say that he does not have these kinds of characteristics of a mother, and they're powerfully illustrated um, in the scripture, okay? So now I'll shift uh, to, to the dads a little bit. And, and uh, it's curious when, when we see some of the imagery uh, of fathers and what fathers are supposed to do, they could apply to mothers as well, you know? And there's plenty of single-parent uh, situations in life today. Maybe some of you are single parents, and you've got to kind of do double duty. You know, you've, you're trying to provide maternal and paternal characteristics for this child, uh, because of whatever circumstance that came. And it's a tall order. It's a difficult, difficult thing to be a single parent and to try and be successful at that. It's not easy. There's a lot, a lot of challenges in that in that walk of life. So what I'm about to give to you can apply both ways. It can go to mothers, it can go to fathers, it can go to single parents. Okay, it can go to anyone, but it's directed toward fathers in general. And the first one is, is in the New Testament. It's from Hebrews chapter 12. Um, and I'm going to give you the, the, the context in the background if you go to the slide there. And this is fathers, but I'll put in, in brackets parents because it, it applies to both genders for sure here. And this is the image of discipline, okay, which none of us like. And probably not many of us like this passage. Uh, And here's here's the context of the passage. He's talking about all these these people, the writer of Hebrews, all these people of faith, these great examples of faith that we see uh, in the Old Testament, one after the other, after the other. He names them. He talks about their lives. And he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Um, He's talking about perseverance. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's trying to encourage the people to keep, their faith going. These are Hebrew people. They're probably under some persecution. He's trying to encourage them. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He, he scorned the shame of the cross. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition, uh, so that you will not grow weary, so that you will not lose heart. In your struggle, Against sin. You have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, i.e., Jesus did. Uh, and, and have you completely forgotten? I mean, you, he, he's saying you want to give up, you want to throw your faith away. Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, and this is from the Proverbs, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Uh, God rebukes you? I don't know if I want to be rebuked by God, right? Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Wow. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. Say, what? God's putting me through hardship because he loves me, because he's my chi- I'm his child? Doesn't make any sense. For what children, he continues the writer, for what children are not disciplined by their father? In other words, he's saying, well, of course, a father is supposed to discipline their children. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, he says, then you are not legitimate true sons and daughters at all. First of all, you got me all messed up with this God thing. Okay, look at the passage carefully on your own. This is this idea of, I, I just, I just want to give up. It's too hard to serve God. There's too much opposition. There's too much of this. There's too much of that. And I just want to throw it away. And, uh, you know, I just want to give up. And, and God is saying to these people, don't give up persevere, the difficulty that you're going through, the persecution that you're going through, this is because God is treating you as a son. This is because God is treating you as a daughter. And sometimes God does correct us, rebuke us, chasten us. You say, what? You're, t- you're trying to tell me that the bad thing that has happened to me is God punishing me for something? No, I'm not saying that in the Scripture isn't saying that. But sometimes it is. There are times where we do things, we make certain choices, we make certain decisions, we think things, say things, do things, whatever, and God will do something, allow something to get our attention. Most of the time, because God is so kind and because God is so gracious and because God is so compassionate, most of the time, the way that he does this is simply to say no to you. You will ask for deliverance from this situation. You will ask for rescue from this problem. You will ask for whatever it is, get me out of this situation, and you will not get out of it. You'll stay in it for a little while. It's God's way of saying no to you. It's God's way of giving you a little bit of correction. It's God's way of chastening you a little bit. And this is not every single circumstance in life. Don't get nervous. Otherwise, everything that, everything that happens to us, it's bad. We say, okay, God's punishing me for something. That's not what the scripture is saying. But there are some times in life where God does do this. And he does this to give us a little course correction, to lead us back on the path that we should be on, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know those things when those things happen to you. You eventually get a sense of, okay, this is something where God is trying to get my attention. This is something that's going to endure for a little while, but then there's going to be something that's going to change in this situation. God is trying to teach me something from this situation. And I've had many experiences like that in life. As I've told you before, most of the time when I pray, I get a lot of no's. (laughs) And you'll get a lot of no's sometimes, and this is God's way of You know, he's teaching you, he's rebuking you, he's correcting you. Then you start learning, you see. And God is the best parent of all. Don't think he's not going to issue a little bit of discipline. Now, what does this mean for parents? What does this mean for dads especially, but also for moms? You've got to discipline your kids. I was talking to to the band before the the service today and here's what I see that makes me real nervous, uh, especially I go outside and, you know, in a public place and watch how people deal with their kids, especially their young kids. Nowadays, I see parents who are negotiating with their kids and they're trying to figure out how can I negotiate with my six or seven year old? to get them to behave in this public place, uh, and how can I win the argument, the intellectual debate of logic and reason with this little kid this little, quite frankly, he's being a bit of a pain right now or she's being a bit of a pain right now and I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to get sued. Uh, so, so how do I win this little argument as if the parent is in a courtroom and they get down on their knee and they talk to the kid as if they're debating with an equal. Y- your little kid is not your equal. Discipline your kid. You don't, you don't have to argue and debate with your little child. It's so quiet, okay? You don't have to do that. And and here's what happens. When we do that, children are very, very smart. And those of you who are parents, have been parents for a long time, you realize they're awfully smart. And what children do is what works. It doesn't matter about, you know, well, this felt right or this felt wrong. No, they'll do what works. So you teach them what works and what does not work. And that's under the whole umbrella of discipline. Let me give you an example of this right out of the news. Stunning, stunning story that I came across this week uh, that maybe some of you have seen on, on Facebook already. If you go ahead, David, and play that video. So the boy even set himself up in a hotel. He spent four days in Bali until authorities finally tracked him down and his parents went to pick him up. He explains he liked the trip, saying sometimes I get into mischief, and he called it a great adventure. <laughs> okay. Wow. Did you ever see the movie Home Alone 2? Very similar. Right, so here you have a 12 year old child who was told, no, we are not going on that vacation to Bali, Indonesia. They live in Australia. We are not going on that vacation. And the 12 year old child said, oh, yes, I am. And he stole, his parents are either divorced or separated. I did some research on it, and you can see the whole situation there if you look into it. But it, but he stole his parents' credit cards. That's that's a crime that's called theft. He tried to board two different airlines who declined him because there was no letter from the any parent. And so he finally found an airline that would allow him to board and travel alone to Bali, Indonesia, a 12-year-old child. He got a hold of his passport by manipulating his grandmother into giving it to him. He spent four days in Bali before he was found. And the only reason why he was found was because he took pictures and video of himself and posted it on social media. And those pictures were geotagged i.e. the locations there and so the police used that to track him down and his parents picked him up now let me tell you that kids do what works and the more that i looked into this whole story and this situation what you have here is a kid who has tried to do this before and in her own words the mother said he does not like the word no Uh, But when you look at, and you research it, and you look at all the people who are reporting on it, you see absolutely nothing in terms of consequence to this child, this 12-year-old child who committed theft and managed to manipulate, to to get his own passport. You see nothing in terms of consequence. He ran up $8,000 on the credit cards. And you see absolutely nothing in terms of consequence. What you do see is that the mother is furious that the system did not somehow stop this kid somewhere. And she she has a point there. But one might question as they look at this story, what, pray tell, would be the consequence of this action? Let me tell you, how about jail? Jail. How about juvenile detention? How about you're working for the next three summers to pay off the debt that you stole on our credit cards? That's called discipline, right? But if it's, well, it's okay, boys will be boys, you're very creative, you're very intelligent, it's all right, we'll pay back the money. I'll tell you what the kid's going to do the next time he hears the word no, he's going to defy the no. Why? Because it works. And a lot of times, parents, listen to me. It's so, so quiet right now. Listen to me. Consequence to actions of disobedience, that's proper discipline. What is the consequence for what your child is doing? If there isn't another consequence that's severe enough to cost them something, and that doesn't really get the point across that, hey, if you do this, here's the consequence They're going to keep doing it, and you would too, because it works. Okay, let me give you another story. This one comes out of a a true story that James Dobson wrote on in one of his books. Dr. James Dobson, you parents, you should read anything and everything by James Dobson, okay? he, he, He writes of a true story of a little boy. I think he was 10 years old, and this boy had his mother wrapped around his little finger. And I think it was a single mother situation, so there's more pressure on her. And so he had her just all, he had it perfectly figured out. And what he would do, this is a true story, when he did not get what he wanted from his mother, he would threaten to strip and take his clothes off in public. So if they were in the toy store and he wanted a toy, she'd say no, and he'd say, I'm gonna take my clothes off. And she, out of fear would give him what he wanted because she was afraid that he was actually going to do it. And so she kind of lived this way negotiating with this kid, this little tyrannical 10-year-old who's got the mother wrapped around his little tentacle, okay? And so the story goes that she took him to the dentist. And uh, we're in the waiting room and the boy says, I'm not going in that dentist's chair. I am not. And if I go in that dentist chair, I'm going to take all my clothes off right here and right now. So she brings him into the dentist. You know, you've got to sit in that chair. And you know, little kids don't like that. Even adults don't like that, right? And it's kind of styrofoam, makes all this noise when you get in and you're ready. They're going to drill your teeth or clean your teeth. So he says to the dentist, I'm going to take my clothes off if you make me sit in that chair. And the dentist, may God bless him abundantly, looked at this 10-year-old boy in the eye and said, son, take him off. And the boy took him off, stripped down right to his bunny suit, you know, right to, he just stripped right down. He's he's completely naked. He's getting the chair. So he got in the chair. He did what he had to do, clean his mouth, clean his little teeth or whatever, this little 10-year-old kid. And then he says, okay, time to go home. But the dentist took his clothes and would not give the clothing back to the kid. It's a true story. Okay? You say, that is the craziest thing I ever heard. That, that dentist should be arrested. Wait. And the dentist said, you're done. You can go home. He took the boy's clothes. The boy had to go home. His little, his little pink 10-year-old body, completely naked, had to go home with his mama And he got home and he never, never did it again. Never. And she went back to the dentist and she said, thank you so much for what you did. My boy's life has been transformed ever since. You know what that's called? That's discipline. (laughs) That's consequence. He, He looked that boy in the eye and he called his bluff. And he said, oh, no, you will not because there will be consequence for what you do. And parents, there are times in your life where you have to call their bluff and you have to stand, especially those of you two-parent homes, you must stand as a united front. Because as I said to the band before, if they get a no from one parent, they'll go to the other one. How many of you have experienced this? And they'll say, well, this one always says no, but this one I can get some yeses out of. So I'm going to try and see. I'm going to knock on that door and see if it opens. Parents, there are times where you must be a united front in the battle against your child's stubborn will. Especially those of you who have stubborn-willed kids who usually turn out to be great leaders and all that. If you can harness (laughs) all of that stubbornness, it's consequence, and you must be prepared to deal it. Don't just say no. There's got to be consequence for your action. And when the child knows you are not playing around, then they know, okay, consequence is coming. And you know what they learn from that? They learn that you love them. They learn that you love them. Because if you never give that consequence and you say, if you step across that line and you know what they're the first thing that they're going to do, they're going to step across that line. Do you know why? They want to test you and see if it's true what you say. But if you say this is this this is going to happen, if you step across that line and you do not do what you say, what does that tell them? I'm not so sure if I can trust what they say. And that will leave them with with questions in the long run. How much am I really loved if there's never any consequence to any action? And then what happens as they grow older and they turn into adults, they turn into, you know, reprobates sometimes because they've never told no. And there was never any consequences. And they realized that life doesn't work that way. It applies to, to, to mothers as well as fathers. Okay, next, uh, next slide. And we'll just do a couple more here. And this is from uh, the book of Ephesians. Again, it's, it's directed towards fathers, but doesn't exclude mothers here. So that's why I put parents. And here's a little chunk, just a little verse from Paul. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the lord do not exasperate them in some translations do not provoke them and we saw a tremendous example of this in the film last week here you have a totally abusive dysfunctional father who just just beats this this boy who's who's violent in the home who's is just he's just a monster in, in, in the, the real story, in Bart Millard's own words, my father was a monster. And that's how you exasperate your children. Uh, even without abuse, you have fathers sometimes who, who have demands and place demands on their kids that are just completely unreasonable. And they do that because they want their kid to be something that they could never be. And they exasperate their children. And they provoke their children. And, and, and Paul says, do not exasperate your children. But instead of doing that, train them, instruct them in the Lord. And you do that by very, very natural ways. Dads and moms, look for opportunities just in the day-to-day life to teach your kids about God just in the day to day life moses said as you walk along the road you know as you as you lie down and as you get up look for just natural ways to inject something about god so that they start becoming aware of god you train them you instruct them in the ways of the lord do not exasperate them you know the old the old uh, i think it's in the psalms psalms or proverbs train up a child in the way he should go and when he's old he will not depart from it have you heard that before Okay, so anyway, this is a famous, often preached on thing, you know, train up a child in the way they should go, so bring them to church, train them up in the way they should go, bring them to Sunday school or whatever your thing is, and when they get old, you know, they may stray, and, but they'll come back eventually because you did your job as parents and, you know, you were faithful, train them up in the way they should go. Okay, there are parents, maybe you're in this room, maybe they're not, but I've met parents and they say, that's not what it means. Because I trained up my child in the way that they should go. I did everything I was supposed to do as a parent. And my child is so far away from God. So maybe, maybe I didn't do my job properly. Maybe that's why my child isn't serving God. Maybe that's why they're, you know, doing drugs. And I raised them in the church and brought them in Sunday school. And this is what happened to them. What happened? What's wrong with me? I trained them up in the way they should go. The, what the passage means when you really do a good, good exposition of this passage Train up a child in his way, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. A more sane way of interpreting this passage is, you look for the way that God wired this child. Train up a child in his way. What is the fingerprint of God on your sons and daughters? He put a fingerprint on you as parents, but he put a different one on your sons and daughters what is that fingerprint? What is their passion? What are their gifts? What are their talents? What is it that they love to do? Even if you don't like it, dads, (laughs) even if you don't like it, moms, what is the way that God has wired this child? Train up the child in his way, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Makes sense. When that child is doing, they found the, 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 the passion and the drive that God wired into them. As strange as it may seem to you, as foreign as it may seem to you as parents, it's not yours, it's theirs. It's what God did in them you find that out and you drive that thing you you be at all of the all of the events to support them you know you you go to all the practices you go to all those things and you say i'm with you that's what god has called you to do i will train you up in that way and when you're old you you likely won't depart from do you understand what i'm saying but when we impose Our own desires and our own will upon our kids. You must do this in life. You must be this way in life. What do we do? We exasperate them. But Paul is saying, do not exasperate. Train them. Instruct them in the way of the Lord. To the Colossians, he says this, fathers, do not embitter your children. Do not make them bitter or they will become discouraged. Again, in that movie, you see a classic example of a boy becoming bitter towards his father because he was abused by his father. And the words of his father, you're not good enough, you won't make it, you want to sing, you're not good enough to sing. And what happens in the movie when when his recording contract is declined by all these producers, he hears the, the voice of his father in his head, see, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, and he becomes very, very bitter and very unforgiving towards his father. And he comes to a place in the movie, of course, when you watch it, you'll see if you haven't seen it already, where he learns to forgive his father. But this is what happens. And dads in particular have a powerful role in this. Be very, very careful what you say to your kids. Be very careful because with the wrong word or a crass word or a negative kind of, you know, you just kind of spit something out for lack of better words. And it's negative and it's criticizing them on a personal level. It can make your kids bitter, and it can embitter them. And Paul is saying, do not, do not embitter your children, or what will happen to them? They will lose courage. They will become discouraged. So, you know, when they have courage, flapping their wings, you know, with mama ego underneath them, well, they're going to lose that courage if you cause them to become bitter. So remember that in the last image for you before we close, this is from Paul's letter to Thessalonians. And uh, here he's using both mothers and fathers. It's a really interesting passage. And he's talking about how he and his his team lived among the Thessalonians and worked among them and how he was kind of uh, bivocational. You know, he did ministry, but he also worked among them and made tents and so on. And so this is what he says, he says, we did, we did not seek glory from people, whether uh, from you or from others, uh, we, though we could have made demands, we did not. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her children. There's that image again. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us, like a, like a mother caring for her little children. This is the way that we were among you Thessalonians. Again, are you caring for your little children, mothers? Are you being, you know, mama bird, mama eagle, and mama bear at times? And then in verse 9, for you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day, that we would not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, of how holy, righteous, blameless we were in our conduct towards you, for you know how, like a father with his children. Now he switches to fathers. We exhorted each one of you, and we uh, uh, we encouraged you, and we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, Who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And in another translation, how a father deals with his own children, encouraging them and comforting them and urging them, yes, you can do it. Yes, you can. Yes, you can fly. Yes, you can do this thing. Yes, you can fulfill that dream. Again, referring to to the movie uh, last week. You know, at one point, the father says to his son, you know, your dreams don't pay the bills. And he basically, throw your dreams out, and you're not good enough to fulfill your dream. And then you see at the end of the film, when he's on his deathbed, he provides all this money for for his son uh, from an insurance policy, he's dying of pancreatic cancer, and he provides all this money for him, and he says, that dream, you, you can fulfill it now, and you go and you catch it. It's such a powerful story. Uh, and it's such an example, and this is what dads have the ability to do to say, hey, you can make it, you can do it, you've got the stuff inside to make it, and with God, you can do it, okay? So moms and dads, that's a lot, a lot of information, um, and you can, again, listen to it online. I hope it's being recorded. Yeah, I see the red light. So um, that is it for our series on um, uh, endangered species, all right? Next week, Uh, We're going to start something new, and it's called Misinterpret. Just go to the end here. I'm going to expose our biggest Bible blunders, all right? We'll spend a few weeks on that. Kind of started it a little bit, actually, over the last couple of weeks, Uh, but I'm going to look at some of the verses that we completely, completely yank out of context, how we misinterpret things and how they can have really, really bad consequences, so you'll learn uh, in this series how to look at the bible for yourself and how to learn to interpret things correctly all right would you stand with